Hey everyone, it's uh, David C. Barnett from it's from davidcbarnett.com. I I'm me, and where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. I've got Mark Willis back again, who is a certified financial planner and host of Not Your Average Financial Podcast. How are you doing today, Mark? Oh, having a great time. You know, every day above the ground is another day in paradise, David. So having fun. And we were just talking before I hit record about the impact of COVID and, and you were in a, in downtown Chicago and then you've become one of these people who's left the big city to give yourself a little more breathing room. And so how do you like it out where the mosquitoes live? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're uh, about the size of eagles out here, but uh, yes, uh, we still live in Chicagoland, love Chicagoland and our, our offices remain just half a mile or so up the street from the White Sox stadium, downtown Chicago. Uh, okay. Go Sox. But uh, our, our family and you know, my family has uh, moved out uh, among the rest of the urban exodus. We actually put the order in, put the offer in for the house uh, right as the VIX index, the fear and uh, greed index on Wall Street was at its height back in uh, April and got a nice uh, discount, you might say, on the, on the property. Since then, real estate has gone sky high again, of yeah. course. Uh, so we got Everywhere. in, I guess, right, right before we uh, saw the prices go way back up. Well, th- what great market timing uh, that well, who, for you. Who knows what they'll be doing in the fall? I mean, and the whenever this episode airs, we could be seeing more volatility. Who knows? But Okay. Well, you know, let me do a quick recap on what you talked about last time you were here. So you, last time you were here, you were talking about whole life insurance policies. So I buy a life insurance policy and it's a whole life policy, which means I can fund it and then we add different things to it that allow me to put more money in. And so a cash value builds as well as it's an insurance policy if I die, for example. Uh, and then the whole idea of having this asset is it's, it's kind of like equity in, in many other assets. You can borrow against it. But what's great about these policies is that, and I, I want you to correct me if I got any of this wrong, what what's great about these policies is that the way life insurance works is that depending on how well the insurance company do, does, they issue what they call a dividend, which is they top up your cash balance. And if they do poorly, you just get zero. If they do well, you get this dividend. So unlike equity in a home, which could go down, as we were just mentioned, house prices go up and they may go down this sort of annual locked in thing becomes a floor. So it always moves in one direction and that's the big yep. difference. And and um, since you were last on, I read a bunch of books. So I read this one, uh, Case for Good IBC. Book. I read this one, which is the Pamela Yellen book. Uh, that's the uh, that's kind of your the user manual bible, so to speak. Yeah, Bank on Yourself Revolution. Bank on Yourself. Yeah. And then I and then I also read this one, which was oh, yeah. uh, Becoming Your Own Banker. It's um, like the original OG, you know. Um, yeah. yeah, the the absolute foundational text for sure, man. You're uh, you're quite the reader. Well, it was interesting to me uh, because I, I, you know, went and explored it for my own purposes. And then I heard from viewers, uh, some of them actually reached out to you, I think, to do some of this, where they've set up these whole life policies. And then in turn, you know, this is part of their plan to acquire a business. They're then making a policy loan. So, so the, the neat thing about borrowing against the policy is that the amount of the cash value of the policy continues to grow. And then this loan against it is kind of on the side. And like any loan, there's interest and you have to pay it back over time. But it, it's a way to continue to grow that without uh, 
you know, I guess if you had a savings account, you'd be drawing the money out, you'd lose growth, right? That's precisely right. Yeah, we're- Did I get it all right? We, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, let's end the episode right there. That's great. Yeah. No, we're <laughs> there's not that, done. There's that, uh, <laughs> there's we're not that done. uninterrupted compound growth feature that I can't find really anywhere else uh, that has these kind of protections and locked in gains, guarantees. You know, certainly you can use a HELOC, you can use a margin loan on your brokerage accounts, but all of those uh, 401k loans, all of those come with tremendous downside risk Mm. Uh, that I just don't see with a whole life contract, which is guaranteed to grow even when I borrow against the cash. I mean, that to me is the best of both worlds. My money's doing two things at once. So when I explored this further, I started talking with some, some agents here in Canada that I could do these deals with. One of the things that I got into exploring was looking under the hood of these insurance companies and finding out what's the magical thing the money made? How are they able to, to do this? And so basically they've got very solid positions, very low leverage. It's a lot of bonds, government bonds, good corporate bonds. Sometimes there's a little bit of real estate owned in there too, like office buildings and things like that. And so it's just a, it's a very low risk kind of portfolio, which then begs the question in the current crisis, you know, this natural disaster of COVID, um, some people would argue, for example, the bond market isn't functioning the way it normally should because we have central banks buying government debt. Um, so the pricing mm-hmm. mechanism is off. So what do you think could be some of the results of COVID on, uh, on these whole life policy programs? Man, yeah, you're, uh, that's a great question. It gets right to the heart of where we are today. So let's talk at an institutional level first. Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's talk about a personal level second at some point. Uh, So we want to make sure wherever we put our money, whichever whole life insurance, uh, mutually owned life insurance company you're putting your cash with, you want to investigate that company before you make the decision to bank on yourself. So there's a couple of, you really have to, have you ever done any downhill skiing where you're having to thread the the different slums and, and go between those poles and everything? You're having to thread that needle all the way down the hill. And it's sort of like that. I've been at ski hills um, where I've seen people do that. I'm not going to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) No, no. Yeah. And uh, I've got the broken wrist uh, to prove that I can't do it either. So, (laughs) um, but anyway, so, so think of it in that metaphor in terms of how to pick and design one of these policies. Uh, You need the right agent Mm -hmm. who knows all the proper ways to design and construct and engineer the policy. We need a paid up additions writer. We need a non-direct recognition loan company. We need uh, so many other features there, which I'll set that conversation aside for a minute. That's why working with a bank on yourself professional makes all the difference in the world here. There's a lot of, I'll call them big influencers or just Googled it advisors that you want to watch out for. I'll set that aside for now. Uh, You also really want to look for the right insurance company. And uh, you you really want to look at a company that's got at least a 90 on the Comdex rating. Mm-hmm. So the Comdex is a great amalgamation of all the different insurance companies of which there's about 1100 in the United States, probably more in, in United States plus Canada. And you really want to look for a company that's got at least a score of 90 out of 100. That means they are better than their financials are better than 90% of all their peers okay. uh, in the so insurance top, space. So that's top 10% because, yeah. um, you know, some of these life insurance companies have been around for a very, very long time. Correct. Uh, some of them not for as long. And, and then of course, 
you know, some of them could in fact make bad investing decisions, I guess, and, and they're in trouble, yeah. right? They're humans working there too. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So you really want to pick those rock solid, been around for over a century type companies. Uh, but once you've got the right solid financial company, you really are not going to see a lot of fluctuations. So, you know, kind of given their financial strength, they have the ability to hold on to their assets, which may go up or down depending on market volatility. You might know, of course, that bonds don't go up and down as much as stocks. They, they put most of their money in fixed income assets. Well, and, and, that's, and that's a great point because if interest rates go up or down, if you hold a government bond and you want to sell it in the secondary market, the price of the bond will be affected by interest rates. But if you bought it from the issuer, if you're a life insurance company, you've got this long planning horizon, you might, it might be a 30-year bond, but you can just hold it until the end. So whatever yeah. the terms were when you bought it or the terms you're going to enjoy the whole length of time you own it. Right. Yeah. I've talked to some of the CFAs, certified financial analysts at these insurance companies, many of whom manage a general account of 30, 40, 50 billion with a B US dollars. And that is a held to maturity uh, bond portfolio and mortgages and other real estate portfolio they are not interested in today's price. They are looking at a coupon payment, a, a monthly cash flow, much like our us as investors, they're looking for that cash flow more than they are the ticker price on Tesla today. You know, So they're looking long range. It's interesting. In a, in a previous career, when I was doing some finance arrangement, finance brokering, I would sometimes deal with a, um, a mutual life insurance company that operates around here. And what was interesting about those guys is that their pricing wasn't always the best as far as interest rates, but they were willing to write 15, 20, 25 year mortgages, which is not normal here in Canada. Most of them are five year. That's it. Um, And then they, they renew at whatever the market rates are at that time. But if for whatever reason you needed to lock in that payment for 15 or 20 years, the life insurance company was where you went. And it, again, it's matching those, their, need for cash, which is out over a long period of time. Um, and, and so they were getting a little bit of a better rate of return than the banks might've been getting in those mortgages. Um, but they weren't writing any riskier mortgages. In fact, they were only interested in buyers who had more of a down payment, uh, because they wanted them to be more solid, more secure. David, you're bringing up a great point. I interviewed a guy for our podcast, uh, recently, he's a commercial mortgage lender and he is a, operates in a regional bank here in Chicagoland, the Midwest. And he told me, yeah, he said, hey, we can keep in-house, you know, up to $10 million loans can be kept here in-house. But when we need to go for a big loan, we're going to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and life insurance companies uh, as a ready source of massive amounts of capital. And that's one thing I guess I'll mention. You know, this is a giant general fund managed by professional actuaries and CFAs, certified financial analysts, bond investors, people who are way smarter than I am at managing risk because that's what they do all day long. They're not looking to search for giant yield. They're looking to keep their promise. Mm. And that's what the life insurance company is doing for a century, uh, even amidst a pandemic. Uh, So when I put a massive amount of money into a life insurance policy, if I've designed it correctly, I'm going to have a guaranteed predictable increase in my cash. And if the market drops like it did in March, or it might this fall, once again, who knows, 
uh, I know that every dollar that I had yesterday is going to still be in that policy today. Part of the reason why I use the policy for that is because I know I don't mind pumping a lot of money into this policy, even with all the background knowledge of and, and mainstream ideas about diversification, right? David, they tell you, diversify, diversify, put your money in 15 different uh, eggs and in 15 different baskets. What I know is that when I put money into a life insurance policy that's managed by a team of investors, they have already diversified and they are solving the diversification problem, which why, think about this for a minute. Why do they tell you, why do they, meaning like traditional financial planners, why do they tell you to diversify? Usually it's to protect against loss or to search for yield while minimizing risk. Well, I, I, mean, I, I share a different opinion because most, yeah, tell, investment, tell me. most investment advisors tell you to diversify, but then they offer you fixed income or stocks because that's, or mutual funds because that's what they sell. <laughs> Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. They, they don't. They don't tell you to buy some fixed income, some stocks, and a couple of apartment buildings, and some, sure. you know, a gold mine in Peru or anything like that. Like they, yep. they, they tell you to buy what they sell. Oh, so, totally. Yeah. Baskin Robbins. Hey, diversify. <laughs> I've got thirty-one flavors right here. Yeah. Right. Oh, wait. You also need whole grains, and you also probably no. Don't worry about that. Just go for our ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> so when I when I was looking at the the sort of the investment baskets of, and I explored a couple different insurance companies. Um, as I went down this path for myself, um, what I found is that they're, you know, heavily on the fixed income and some other things, some, you know, a little bit of real estate and stuff. So if I looked at it, you know, people could say, you know, commercial real estate has an uncertain future now because of COVID people are going to work more virtually demand could go down. We've already heard about companies, especially in very expensive cities like San Francisco mm -hmm. announcing that they're going to, you know, reduce their footprint or close up office space. So in the overall portfolio of that particular life insurance, that, that tiny sliver could have an impact, but it's a small part of a small part. And, and I mean, the part that I like is that if the performance isn't there, it may just simply mean that this year's dividend won't be as generous. It doesn't mean, guess what, you're now down, which is a problem faced by a lot of other investors who are in the stock market and things like that. So true. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I know you do a YouTube video. May I share my screen for a quick minute? Yeah, sure. Be easy enough. Uh, and I'll explain it to those just listening, but um, you can sort of, oh, I, oh, you may have I need to, I need to let you hang, hang on. Right. Um, there you it go. may be helpful. All right. Thank you. It may be helpful just to see what we're talking about here. So this is a picture of mutually and publicly traded life insurance and property casualty insurance companies mm -hmm. as of the latest data, 2017. Uh, so S&P market intelligence, EY analysis, uh, Ernst & Young analysis says we're looking at maybe 2% of most mutual life insurance portfolios are wrapped up in mortgage loans and real estate. Whereas uh, there may be, you know, 64% uh, going into bonds, a large portion is in cash. We've got some money in equities there and so on. Um, and I would say actually, just to be, just to be actually very um, forthright, if it's a direct recognition life insurance company, here, I'll sh stop sharing my screen here. I want to talk about like the, the power of the loans and how mm. this can be used. How can this actually benefit the life insurance company? So a direct and non-direct company. Uh, how do I explain this vocabulary word in a way that makes sense? If you have a direct life insurance company 
they directly recognize when you borrow against your policy. So if I've got $100,000 in cash value and I borrow out 30 to go invest in a business, then I'm only earning seven, uh, worth of 70,000 left, what's left in my policy, what's not collateralized. My dividend therefore is reduced anytime I borrow money out. Okay. Uh, on the, on the non-direct side, the, the kind that I prefer for bank on yourself, if I borrow 30,000 from my 100, I'll still get the full growth and dividends on the entire 100,000 bucks as if I had not touched the money. That to me is the, the sweet spot right there. That's what makes this juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. Uh, and, and that's what I look for with bank on yourself type policies, non-direct so, recognition. So your policy loan, the loan that you've taken that you'll pay interest on, it basically just becomes part of that giant basket of the fund's investments. You know, part oh, of their correct. investments are in policy yeah. loans. Correct. And it's, you know, there's zero risk to the insurance company because if you don't pay it back, they just take it out of that cash value you have in your safest policy. loan, sa- safest bond they can invest in is one that they've already self-collateralized, which is yeah. our life, right? So they know that that loan is going to be repaid one way or the other. And I'll, I'll mention this quickly, David, and then I'll, we can move on. But uh, in this interest rate environment, uh, they're charging typically a 5% loan on most policies that I see. And that is a 5% simple interest, meaning as an investor, if you're smart and paying yourself back over a reasonable period of time, your real APR might be about 1 to 2.2%, somewhere in that ballpark, that APR, if you pay it back over, say, five years or something. So 2 point something percent APR is very affordable, cheap access to money. But for other uh, policyholders who are not paying that loan off, where else can the insurance company in this interest rate environment find a 5% uh, loan uh, out there? I mean, that's a great way to increase their yield without any additional risk. That's why I think the non-direct companies are going to do better uh, given this low interest rate environment we're all in uh, than the, say, the direct recognition, even as, as uh, other companies are jockeying for bank on yourself, you know, related products. I think it's the non-directs, both for the policyholder, they get that value of double growth, and the insurance company itself, because they see the ability to get that higher yield when folks are encouraged to borrow from their policies. Well, and 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 the what's great about the the whole policy loan idea is that this it can be either money for opportunism or or for crisis. Um, that's uh, right. It, my own uh, insurance agent told me that he got several phone calls around the lockdown time where people were needing money and he was able to facilitate several hundred thousand dollars worth of policy loans. Yep. And then unfortunately, as word spread, he started to get calls from people who had bought term insurance and he's like, sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. You, you didn't buy the right thing. You, mm-hmm. you, know, you bought the cheaper mm-hmm. one. And, and so I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but I mean, I, I just turned 45. So as I examine my, you know, all of my interests and in everything that I'm doing with the business and my house and my investments, et cetera, um, you know, I, I don't mind sharing with people that this is something that I've decided to fit into my overall plan uh, to get me, you know, to the end here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I basically look at it as the, as a replacement for the fixed income or low risk component of a sort of a quote unquote traditional investing uh, portfolio kind of plan. That's a great way to look at it. You know, this is not meant to replace your higher uh, risk assets or your speculative instruments. It could be seen as a bond fund replacer for you. 
it's a lot more liquid than a bond fund would be. Uh, I kind of jokingly refer to this as a triple B bond yield with triple A bond safety mm -hmm. uh, because it has that kind of performance uh, with a lot more liquidity, of course, than a bond fund would have and more tax advantages, at least in the United States. I assume in the Canada as well, this can be accessed without taxes due. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. It's it's it, it's kind of like a, re a registered retirement plan in that the money can grow tax-free when it's inside of there. And then it just depends on how you take it out. So at, when I get to the end, if I decide I need some of this money in my retirement, I can take out the money I put in tax-free. If I take out more money directly from the company, then there's a tax implication, but there's also a debt strategy. So you can, you can assign your, debt your death benefit to a, a bank who can then give you mm -hmm. a line of credit against it. And sure. so, you know, there's different scenarios, different plans. I'm sure very similar to what you're telling your clients in the States they might be able to do. David, I'd love to know, how do you intend to use this policy as a part of your investing strategy when you're buying businesses or equipment, investing? What do you see this? How does this fit into your active business? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you asked that because it's a question I had to answer because as I've gone through this process, I've been presented with two different kinds of products. One where the insurance cost is front loaded and one where it's back loaded. So, you know, in one program, the cash value builds very quickly. So kind of, if you put money in for the next 10 years, you can get almost all of it accessible back out versus the other one where the cash value grows very slowly, but 30 years out, it's cash value is much higher. And so I've had to try to figure out, you know, what, do I intend for this? Is this really money for when David's 70 or is it potentially money that I need access to in 10 years time? And the answer that I've settled upon is I've just looked at all the other things I've got in my life financially, and I've got a bunch of other things I could draw upon first. So I've decided to go with the sort of the, the more upfront loaded insurance cost that will ultimately be worth more to me or my heirs. Uh, that's the route that I've gone down. It's uh, if imagine buying a, a car that got better gas mileage every year you owned it and every mm. year you had it, it got better and more efficient and faster. How long would you keep that car? Right. Right. And when you have a financial vehicle that gets less and less uh, expensive and more and more efficient. Uh, in fact, when I pass away, it's going to multiply even more to my family income tax free how long would I keep that? I'm going to take that all the way to my grave, God mm -hmm. willing, and uh, leave it to my grandchildren someday uh, in a way that avoids income tax, which may be way higher in the future, at least in our countries, uh, given everything going on this year. Uh, so you've been asking questions around what's going on with the insurance companies this year. I'll tell you, some of the companies I work with have raised their dividends, not cut, but actually gave everybody a pay raise this year. Uh, it's always, I'm getting the news, seeing the reports, business as usual. Uh, there are a few insurance companies I've seen, pretty major ones that surprised me and really slashed a lot of their new business, which is their way of saying not as many people are going to get policies this year. Mm -hmm. That concerns me. Um, I wouldn't have expected that. They weren't companies that I contract with or work with, but they're major mutual companies uh, I'll leave their name off this just for their sake, I guess, but I'm um, surprised that, by that. Do you think that they're concerned? Because one of the biggest problems that these companies have 
is that everybody sending in those policy checks, they've, they've literally got mountains of cash coming through the front door. Right. They have to find a place to put it. Do you think that they're trying to stem the flow of the incoming cash because they just don't know where to get those returns? We, we uh, interviewed a top executive at one of these companies. If folks want to go deep dive, go to episode 158. It was just two or three weeks ago as of this recording. Uh, so episode 158 of our podcast uh, to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. But yes, when you, if you're a life insurance company and you're offering these insurance products, it is a liability to you as the insurance company to offer that insurance product. Think about it this way, David. You, I don't know what you're putting into your policy, but let's say, you know, Joe Schmo is putting in 25,000 bucks a year and he has a $2 million death benefit. Mm. So in year one, I'm Joe Schmo. I put in my 25 grand. I die this year. Somebody great rate of return. Holy smokes. You're telling me. Yeah. Uh, so that means a giant liability on their books yeah. uh, just got paid out. So that's, that is an expense, not to mention the commissions to the agent and other things. So the, the key here is know your, know your population. And uh, if, if you didn't mitigate that risk before 2020, uh, you could be caught flat footed if you were taking some risky measures with your uh, risk pool, the people you're apply, you know, bringing on, if, if you're bringing on kind of the infirmed or too many smokers or people with diabetes, and then all of a sudden a pandemic hits, you're going to be in big trouble. And I bet you, not knowing this is above my pay grade here, but I bet that some of these companies, uh, not a 90 or higher on the Comdex, are going to go out of business. Um, and we can talk about what happens then if you want to, David. But oh, because of the, the death benefits, uh, if they have a lot of policyholders that are going to be making claims. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We just, uh, we just cleared a million deaths worldwide. God forbid. I hope everyone listening is safe and we get through this virus. But uh, that was a million people they didn't expect, I assume, uh, in their models. Uh, except, except for the companies that have been around for a century, like the ones we recommend because they were already around in the last pandemic we had in 1918. So it's, it's all about perspective. It's all about where do I keep my money? If I've got my money in a company that's been around since the civil war of the United States, some of these companies, uh, I, I have a good sense that they're going to be around another century, which is enough time for my money to be passed along safely. Well, and you know, for the companies that, that get through this, it could actually mean a couple of good years because what, from what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing in the news is that a lot of the people, unfortunately, who are passing from uh, COVID uh, had other complications and are, mm -hmm. are right. probably people that, that may have passed on in the coming two or three years. So mm -hmm. um, it could mean a declining number of claims here in the next few years. Well, and it's just a reminder how how actuaries do their work. And actuaries are the nerds on the playground of nerds. Uh, so I love hanging out with the nerds, but these guys are like the nerds nerds. <laughs> and they know their numbers. They know it's gonna be three people, three 32 year olds out of 10,000 that are gonna pass away this year. And they know precisely how to price that out. So, you know, really I have no more likelihood of dying if I've got a term policy or a whole life policy or a variable life insurance policy, it's the same risk. The question is, where do they hide the fees? Mm. With term insurance, it's a lot cheaper uh, on, the, on the monthly bank draft, but what was the expense? If I pay for a term policy for 20 years, 30 years, and I get no benefit out of that, 
I may have sunk 60 grand into that term policy over 30 years and I have $0 to show for it at the end. That's what we call profit to the insurance yeah. company. I liken term life insurance to like uh, your home insurance. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. I mean that, you know, the, you know, in life insurance, everyone's going to die at one time, but not every house is going to burn down. And right. so the, the property insurance companies, they're, they're trying to figure out what might our claims be this year. Let's bring right. in that money plus the profit we need to operate. And, you know, and then competition keeps them from raising it too high. Mm -hmm. And so with term, it's kind of the same thing. Um, you know, so after your last appearance on this show, um, when I got interested in the concept and I read the first of those three books, I then went online and I started to look for the critical opinions of this whole idea. Um, and, and I can basically summarize them like this is basically people were saying, look, these whole life policies, they grow in value. It's just like equity. It's like equity in a house or, or a mutual fund or in a stock portfolio. And so really the criticisms of this plan came down to that the, the cost of the insurance portion. They're just like, you know, if you just save money or bought some other kind of investment. But for me, the key is the market volatility, um, which is what what draws me to this program uh, for the, the fixed income component of my overall strategy is just the fact that, you know, you get that ceiling, that floor, it goes up, but then it doesn't go back down. What, right. what, what do you yeah. think is the most, what, what is the biggest sort of pushback or uh, objection that you face um, when people are doing this? Because, and the other big thing that I struggled with was the whole idea of signing a, a contract for a long term. Like, you know, I agree to pay this for 20 years, for example. Right. Yeah. Wow. Such good stuff. You know, a lot of people, this is a new concept for, mm. I'd say the more affluent you are or your family is, uh, the more likely you've already got this in your portfolio. But for a lot of, um, you know, middle to upper middle class, they're, they're not aware of this or haven't really been exposed to this type of uh, whole life insurance as a financial management tool and an asset class. So a lot of it is just getting over the fact that, hey, why hasn't anyone told me about this? And, you know, a lot of people even say, well, is this just some big, uh, you know, hoodwink scam or something? So a lot of times we have to really kind of think through what is a scam, what is, uh, what is too good to be true. Uh, and so one of the things that really caught my attention is how liquid this is. This is a liquid pool of money. Usually, usually guys and gals who are looking to scam you are not quite ready to give you all of your money back anytime you want it. Uh, that's a that's a big uh, green light to me that this is a legitimate long-term financial vehicle. I mean, it's been around for 200 years in this country. Um, so, you know, having access to the money uh, is a quick reminder to me that this is something that is safe and liquid and accessible. Mm. You know, if this was like sl swampland in Florida that I'm investing in, they're, they're not going to quickly throw all of my money back in my bank account. Like well, they'll let I, you do. I actually did start asking some people, like I started to bring it up with people that I knew. And yeah. what surprised me was the number of, of business owners that I ran into who had company owned whole life policies right, or, yeah. or certain sets of reasons uh, mm -hmm. within their corporations. And then um, a couple of people I know who have affluent parents told me that they have whole life policies that were bought for them when they sort of came of age, when they turned 18 they got their own whole life policy that has since become self-funding, meaning the dividends pay the policy premiums, 
and and so I've nobody goes around asking what kind of insurance you have. I understand that, but but <laughs> when I did, I started to see more and more of it, and I started to open some conversations with people. And the other thing that that um, was interesting that was mentioned in these books is how often people have both. So they'll they'll have some kind of whole life policy. And then they'll, if they have new baby, new baby children, for example, they'll get a term policy to cover a perceived gap until the children are going to be adults. And if you get the right kind of term insurance, again, from the right company, you can even convert that term insurance over to whole life without Mm -hmm. a medical exam. Let's say I had some term insurance to cover that gap for my kiddos. And then I slip on a banana peel and I'm no longer able to get life insurance as a result, I can use my term insurance to convert to a whole life. Uh, Again, you want to know what you're converting to, just like religion, you want to know what you're converting to. And Mm -hmm. so that term policy might go to the wrong type of whole life. So you want to always ask those questions before you buy buy that term insurance. Uh, But you're exactly right. Uh, I'll give three quick stories. Um, Ted Benna, who's kind of credited as being the finder and father of the 401k here in the United States. He, um, you know, he championed the 401k for many years. He recently wrote the book, Happy Birthday 401k. It is officially 40 years old this year or 40 years young. Uh, So I was shocked to learn how young the 401k is, uh, to think that it's this grand experiment our country is going through right now, that it's that young. It's not even old enough to retire yet. Uh, David, that's, that's, that was a surprise. But he recently came out saying, this Ted Benna, that he no longer thinks the 401k is what he wanted it to be originally. In fact, he keeps most of his money in whole life insurance, dividend paying mm-hmm. whole life insurance. Um, second story, uh, Jim Harbaugh, who's one of the major, major uh, uh, coaches, football coaches at Michigan, in Michigan, University of Michigan, uh, recently signed on for with the Wolverines to sign on for a $2 million annual premium payment uh, into a whole life policy that will then use be used as a retirement income stream for his future uh, and pay him a tax-free benefit for the rest of his life in the seven figures, which I thought was really cool. Uh, and then I'll mention very quickly, uh, you know, actually banks are some of the biggest purchasers of these. So you brought up uh, what you talk about at cocktail parties, uh, who, who talks about what kind of life insurance they have. If you find a banker at a cocktail party, uh, once we have parties again, uh, ask them if their bank has any life insurance on their executives. And if they know uh, as much as Google does, because you can Google bank-owned life insurance, you'll find you know Bank of America, mm-hmm. Chase, Wells Fargo, all of these mega banks and, and credit unions too. They all keep massive amounts of tier one capital. They're safe. They're rock solid, safe money uh, in cash value life insurance. And I find that hypocritical in some ways because, you know, banks tell you, tell all of us that the safe place is their bank deposit accounts and savings accounts and CDs. But I always, uh, I guess I've learned to, to realize, or I've learned to tell folks, don't do what banks tell you to do with your money. Uh, watch what they do and then just go do that instead. Well, yeah. I mean, if you, if you look, you know, what, what did the 401 and you know, the 401k was in the United States, but within, you know, just a couple of years, the same types of programs appeared in Australia, New Zealand and Canada and, you know, tax sheltered investment schemes for people to put their money in and defer the tax until later. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about supply and demand, 
Um, as soon as you create, increase the demand for something, the price goes up. And so right. if all you have to do is, is get an old Benjamin Graham investment book and talk about the type of yield he talks, he's writing about, about stocks and stuff. It's, mm-hmm. at, it's completely a different world from the right. investment returns and things people get today because the, the prices of stocks and other investments have been bid up so much by the fact that there's this ocean of buyers who have been mm-hmm. brought into the system. And, um, you know, yeah, if, if you're in the business all been, selling those things, then it's probably been a pretty good run. What I, sometimes we call it the roaring 20. When you look at 1980 to 2000, that is the boomers coming of age. They're mm-hmm. all shoving money into 401ks. They're all pumping the stock market prices up. And what's happening the next 20 years as 10,000 baby boomers retire in this country every single day who's going to buy all that sold stock because they're selling their 401k stock to buy groceries and, and uh, upkeep their living and, and so much more that the, the biggest uh, generation on earth is, is having to um, spend all those stocks. Well, I don't know, but uh, I don't think we'll, we'll be talking Benjamin Graham returns the next 20 years. So mm. what I love about your podcast is you've given folks a plethora, a buffet a smorgasbord, let's say, of rare and uh, I think very important places to invest. All I say as a compliment to your podcast is, where do we keep the money in between the great deals that you're investing in? Mm. Where is our parking space? Because our money has to live somewhere, even in between our deals. And it's the policy, in my opinion, that provides a great spot for contingency cash uh, right between the, the great investment you're going to invest in locally or the business you want to purchase. We just had someone who uh, helped, we helped set up the policies for him. He met me through our last conversation, David, uh, being on your show. And he recently put a bunch of money that he had in other stock into a policy and significant chunks of cash are now liquid and protected and tax advantaged. And when he buys his next business, He's going to borrow from his policy. Mm-hmm. The policy will continue to grow as if he hadn't touched the money. It'll be safely diversified by the insurance company that's been around for over a century. And yet he also purchases his business, which is providing cash flow tax advantages. And guess what? The profits of that business, where are they going to go? Right back into his policy. So he can yep. recycle the money for the next deal. It's a tremendous system and it gets us off the Wall Street casino. Oh, well, awesome, Mark. Pleasure to talk to you again. Um, where can people find you? And if they want to learn more about the type of stuff you talk with, uh, you've got your podcast, of course, not your average financial podcast, which is on all the different services, I'm guessing the streaming services. Correct. Um, you just go to not your average financial podcast.com. You can click on request a meeting. There's a big button there. and We'd be happy to say hello for 15, 20 minutes to answer any mm-hmm. other questions you might have. And I'm curious to know from everyone who's listening, what kind of insurance do you have? Put it in the comments down below. Um, and uh, Mark will, will lurk over and, and reply to questions and things that might come up as well. And, um, and if for those of you who haven't, remember, subscribe, like the video, and go over to davidcbarnett.com and get onto my email list if you're not. Um, and you can choose what topics you're interested in. And I send out emails almost every day for different audiences based on what you select. So... Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Mark. And we'll see you all next time.